decline of Christianity in American culture and the loss of influence of Jesus' church is the result of many issues, perhaps none as great as the evangelical church's conclusions about our future. Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, and Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins' Left Behind series have influenced the vast majority of Christians to anticipate the imminent rise of a dominant figure that will control the world's political, economic, and religious systems and will plunge this world into the Great Tribulation. Is that actually what the Bible teaches us? Have you, or those you know, seriously considered what the book of Revelation teaches? If you are like the majority of people today, you've accepted those ideas without a lot of serious consideration or study. In this series, Dr. Russ McKendry is teaching through the book of Revelation to reveal what it actually says about your future, the role of Jesus' church, and the practical implications those conclusions have on your worldview and everyday life. We hope that you'll join us for this entire series and increase in confidence about what you believe and why. Now, here's Russ with Overcoming Bystander Christianity. The text that we're going to be considering is taken, taken from the beginning of Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verse 1 to 6 today. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and, and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. <clears throat> This, as you just heard, this, this particular sermon is dealing with the message to Sardis. I think in many ways there's a relevance in this, in this particular message to those of you that are perhaps the most concerned about what's happening or not happening in the church today. Um, for those of you that are kind of at a distance and you don't really follow a lot what is happening um, in our culture, the, the church that... Jesus' church that used to have so much influence in our culture is losing it fairly rapidly. About 1% of our culture per year is actually concluding that there's no reason to continue with church. And so there's a lot of people, it's not that they're rejecting their faith, it's just that they don't really have any use or need or believe that anything good could come from their participation in the church, so they've just given up. Um, I think this particular, all seven of these messages to some degree speak to that, but this particular message really kind of pierces that. It pushes into it, I think, in a very interesting way. I think all of us could understand this statement that he makes in the beginning of this passage where he says, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Now, that might describe some of you as Christians because I think from time to time, we all kind of sense that. I think it's only normal 
but there's other kinds of, of people that, that we come to know, and sometimes we can go through it ourselves, where we know everybody expects something from us that's just not real. We tend to kind of stay active in trying to just maintain the facade. Um, sometimes that comes from living in intense cultures. It happens a lot in the Bible Belt, for instance, that if you told anyone your doubts, if you shared with anyone the difficulty that you're having in your faith, if you did what you really wanted to do on Sunday morning, you would be done. But the consequences and the implications of that are so large, you just keep pretending. And I think that this particular message is speaking to that in a very intense way. It's speaking to a city that's, I'll tell you a little bit more about it here in a few moments, that, that you would expect that there was no reason for them to main, maintain the sham. And Denver's a unique city. Denver's different than the Bible Belt because it seems like Denver is kind of, it used to be called a cow town. It isn't a cow town anymore at all. But it's a place where a lot of people kind of pass through. They're passing through to either coast. They're passing through middle jobs that they're trying to get in higher level jobs in New York or Los Angeles. And they're trying to, to move through. So Denver was always kind of a, a middle place. It wasn't exactly blue collar and it wasn't top tier either. And so Denver was a place that you could come and hide. You could come and you could get away from the people that held you accountable. You could get away from the people that, that you would actually be embarrassed if they knew how you really lived. And so people came to Denver and they were just themselves. And I don't think that's such a bad thing. But there's, in, spite of, in spite of all of that change in our culture, there's still many of you, I believe, and many, certainly many more, that will listen to the podcast this next week that you're stuck. You're, you're kind of between a rock and a hard place and you, you really aren't convinced about what you say you believe and you're not really living it, but you can't come out. You can't come out and tell people what you really think. And I think that this message, like I said, is really kind of cutting into that. Um, in, in many ways, this whole entire series, we named it Overcoming Bystander Christianity because we really believe it's, it's, it's important for some of you to get off the sidelines. Now, for some of you to get off the sidelines doesn't mean to get into the game. For some of you to get off the sidelines means you need to go back into the bleachers. You need to quit suiting up and you need to quit pretending to be on the team. The Jesus' church is filled with a whole bunch of people that are like Klingons that aren't serious about their faith. And what this message was written is to a whole group of people that were just like that. There were some in that group that would have shamed many of us. There were some of us, like Jesus describes, that just lived lives that he said, they're not soiled, they're not messed up. But there wasn't very many of them. And so the majority of the group, the consensus of that Christian community wasn't good. The temperature was not at all hot. And so we're going to push through this in the same way that we've looked at this structure that is the basic structure of all seven messages that Jesus gave to John to give to the churches. There's six components of it. He starts with some aspects of Jesus' character that, that were pertinent to the, that particular setting. And then he gives them a keep doing list, the positive things they were doing. He gives them a stop doing list, which is the negative things that they were doing. He gives them a brief word of instruction that was corrective. He gives them a warning and a promise. And so we see a similar structure. It's a little change in the order today, but we're just going to push through it in our normal way. 
And so let's open up this first part, the character of Jesus that we see here in this message to Sardis. We see it in verse 1 of chapter 3, and it says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, let me give you a couple of characteristics, three actually, of the city of Sardis. It was a very interesting city. I think the, the most significant thing you would have noticed about it is its geographical location. It was a strategic military stronghold. It was surrounded. There was one little kind of bridge of land that took you into Sardis, and it actually was pretty steep, but it was the only one around because the whole rest of the city was surrounded by 1,500-foot smooth uh, rock cliffs. The, the city was overtaken a couple of different times because in Sardis they didn't worry about the cliffs. And a couple of different times that there were some military strategists that took the city from that side and nobody ever even noticed them until they were in the city. But it was a military stronghold. It was known for several historic battles. Um, but another aspect of it, the city wasn't particularly rich. The geographic isolation because of the, the military uh, position it was in, the, the trade routes and stuff didn't tend to bother with it very much. And so it was an interesting place. It was, it was probably like many of you have lived in army bases, in places where there was a steady economy, but there wasn't anything really special. And so that was kind of Sardis. It was a military stronghold. The second thing that I would think is important in understanding it is that the city of Sardis was, uh, was also tremendously diverse religiously. Um, it, like Denver, um, not quite as bad as Boulder. Um, just, uh, just, just from soup to nuts, it was in, it was in Sardis. And uh, the, the prominence of the, the, the worship in Sardis was the imperial cult. It was what we've mentioned before. It was the worship of the the emperors of the Roman Empire. And particularly in Sardis, they had a temple to Augustus, who was alive when Jesus was born um, in the first century. And so it was a recent kind of rise in the community in Sardis that were really kind of oriented towards the imperial cult. Um, other pagan religions in the area, this is another real distinctive part, they believed that their deities and the things that they, the, the gods that they worshipped, they believed that they could come in and make you better when you were sick. But was what unique about Sardis is Sardis believed in their pagan worship, they believed that their god could come and raise you back from the dead. And this, this kind of plays into the third characteristic because if, if, if your God could, if you could actually live such a life that you could go all the way to the dead and he could bring you back or she could bring you back, it gave you like a mulligan. It gave you like a do-over. And because of this, the city was most known for being a party city. And maybe it had something to do with the military and them partying because, you know, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, just that kind of sense of hedonism. But there, there was... Something at work in, in the religious perspective in Sardis that really caused people to believe that you could come alive after you died. And it wasn't particularly Christian at all. It was, it was a belief in a set of gods that could actually come in and give you a mulligan and you could relive your life. Now, that, that, that 
plays into this, these characteristics of Jesus. I've tried to help you each week ask the question, well, why would he tell him that? Of all the different things that Jesus could have told that city about himself, why did he use those two things? And the, the first thing that I think is significant in this tying to the city of Sardis is that when he says in verse 1, him who has the seven spirits of God, he's talking about his insight and knowledge. Now, that's not real comfortable. If you were to find, there's a lot going on in the, in the news today about all that's happened since 9-11 and all the changes about how Big Brother can watch you, how they can monitor. I heard a story this week that the cell phones that you, cover, you carry in your pocket when you walk into a store, they're, they're, they're getting all the information off your cell phone. They're telling, they can map where you walk in the store, what you stop and look at, what you don't. And people are kind of getting uncomfortable with that. Now, if you go to Europe, it's been like that for a long time, and I, they seem not to bother by it, but I don't like it. But what he's saying here is kind of like that. He says, I know exactly who you are. He's talking about an insight that is precise into how you think. David talks about this in Psalm 139. He, he says, he thinks my thoughts while they're yet afar. He knows my thoughts, which means God thinks your thoughts before you think your thoughts. That's really uncomfortable. Now, if, if, if all of us did what some of you did this week, we'd all be squirming. But because, just think, I used to ask people all the time, and I don't do it very often anymore, when they come to counseling, they, they tell me that they've, they've done the, some despicable thing. And I'll ask them, would you have done that if I was there? And they say, well, of course I wouldn't. But you see, what they've done as a professing Christian is that they've separated themselves from God. And they put themselves kind of in a dark place that they don't believe that he can see. They, they, they believe that they can think thoughts and do things and he doesn't know. And what Jesus is doing is just cutting that wide open. And he's, he's betraying to them or manifesting to them this insight and this intimate knowledge of him. And it plays into this, I think, in a very, very significant way. And so insight knowledge is, I think, a reference really to God's knowledge of you. And it's taken from a reference to the Holy Spirit in the backdrop of Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 1 to 10. In Zechariah 4 and verse 10, it actually says this. He says, Whoever has despised the small, excuse me, the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. The seven, the seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. And so he's actually saying something here, saying this is actually God, and he's everywhere. Now, we see a different reference to this two chapters from here in Revelation 5 and verse 6, where it says, Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing, this is a reference to Jesus, as though it had been slain. So it's a lamb standing as if it was dead. As, as if it had been slain, which is, there's some, obvious a lot of imagery in that. But he goes on, he says, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And so this first is this piercing gaze, this knowledge of you that can't be hidden. The second part of his character that we see is his authority. In verse 1 again, in chapter 3, it says, He's holding these seven stars. Now in chapter 1, verse 16, and again in chapter 1, verse 2, this is the reference of Jesus' authority over the seven churches. He's holding those seven stars in his right hand. He's got them there held in his hand. Now, 
Dr. Robert Thomas was actually a professor I sat under when I was in seminary in the late 80s. And he wrote this, this, this whole message. He said, The general nature of the description is designed to create a special alarm resulting in repentance. I think that's what it does. I've seen it over and over again. When someone actually captures this understanding of the presence of God, there's nowhere you can hide. And so suddenly now that, that stupid thing that you used to do to hide in the basement, it doesn't make sense anymore. Because it seems like, well, whatever you are going to do in private, it's actually going to be demonstrated in public. Nobody likes that. And so Thomas is just cutting through, saying it's kind of brief, it's kind of general, but it was intended just to scare the pants off of you. That's what it was intended, and I think that's what it did. Now, that poses this question in this first point. How much of your life is God actually involved in? Now, as simple as that question might seem, it's not simple at all. Now, the reason is, is that it, in the early 1500s, uh, in the 1600s, you had the, you, you had the Protestant Reformation in, in the 1500s that started moving west through Europe into England. And it, when it came to England, it, it kind of merged with a kind of Puritanic thought in England, and it created a system of theology called deism. Now, deism is also known as the clockmaker theory. And some of you really believe in this. And I, I personally don't believe it's all that biblical, but it's convenient because it believes that God created everything and then he stepped out of everything. Just like a, a maker would create a clock, wind it up and step back and start the pendulum, and he hopes it keeps working. And see, pure deism says that he started everything and he's just up in heaven and he's, he's got this benevolent intention toward you all, but he's not involved in anything. Now, I have personally never met a pure deist. Either people believe in God or they don't. And if you believe in God, the thought that he isn't involved in anything isn't very appealing. And so most of you believe in a modified deism, which I call peekaboo deism, which basically says he's in some things, but he's not in other things. Now, if you're left up to guessing which things he's in and which things he's not in, guess where you're going to land? You're going to land where most people land. You want him in the good things and you don't want him in the bad things. And like the rest of our country, when planes fall, fly into buildings and when your children die and when you're pronounced with terminal cancer, you don't want him in that stuff. See, that's not the stuff you want him in because then he doesn't seem like he's your friend. But you want him in all the good things because you want him to be the cause of all of those good things. Like when your children come home and tell you they're pregnant or we're, when they come home and when they're supposed to be pregnant. <laughs> but that was pretty funny. I'm not very funny, but that was pretty funny. I don't know where that came from either. But whatever was in my mind is completely gone now. It's just like a bird. It just flew away. Um, but I'm telling you that, that, that besides your children being pregnant, you actually like him. You, you want to think he's on your side because you can't see. See, you've got to do all of that by faith. You put him in some things because you can't see him there, and those are the things you want him in, but you can't see him in the bad things either, you, so you take him out of those things. But why? See, deism started screwing up everything because the Bible didn't teach that. When Job is talking to his wife, after the first chapter, there's four, Satan's given this permission, God removes this hedge to protect him, and his life is destroyed. And ironically, 
he, he, Satan does it all one day. And his life is destroyed, and he says, look, naked I came into this thing, and naked I'm going away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In chapter 2, Satan says, why, why don't you let me touch his skin, touch his flesh? He'll curse you then. He said, okay, you can touch him, but you can't kill him. And so in chapter 2, there's a story of him getting covered with these oozing, pussy, I mean, nothing like regular acne, and it's covering his whole body, and he's just taking a piece of broken pottery, scraping the pus off of his skin. And his wife has had it. Now, why his wife wasn't destroyed in chapter 1, I have no explanation for you. I can't tell you. I don't know if it's because they became one flesh or because Satan was going to use her to torment him. I don't know. But what I do know is that she comes to him in chapter 2, verse 9, and she says, well, why don't you just commit suicide? It doesn't sound like that. It sounds like this. Why don't you just curse God and die? Look, if God's against you, Job, who, who can be for you? And he says, you, you, you speak like a foolish woman speaks. Are we to accept the good from God and not the bad? Solomon would write, letter, write later in about 930 B.C., he would write in chapter 7 and verse 14 of Ecclesiastes, he said, In the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider God made one as well as the other. In Isaiah 45, 7, God says, I create light and darkness, I create good, and I create evil. There's nothing that happens in your life that isn't from God. Now, that's uncomfortable. Now, these characteristics push in. They push in further than you want them to push in because they're uncomfortable. They were supposed to be. Now, that brings us to the second part of this letter, the keep doing list. Now, this is, there's not a lot of positive in this, but the positive part of it, we see in verse 1, it's contrasted with verse 1, where it says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. I don't know about you, but I'd never want somebody to tell me that, especially Jesus. He says, you know, you're a fraud. No little boy have I ever, ever seen run up to their mom and say, Mommy, I can't wait to be a hypocrite. You know, they, they, they want to be astronauts and firemen. They want to do all that stuff. But nobody runs up to their parent and says, Look, I, I just want to be a sham. And that's what he says. He says, you, you, you got this reputation to be alive, but you're really dead. But that's contrasted in verse 4 when he says, Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now, this is emphasizing that personal knowledge, right? He, in his mind, he's distinguishing between that group that hadn't messed up and that, the rest of them that had. And he said, there's a few of you that I know have kept doing the right thing. And this idea of soiled or have not soiled and negated, it, it literally meant as causing something to be dirty. But it's figuratively, figuratively, it was used of religious or moral unfaithfulness. It meant to defile. Now, to defile something is something you don't have to be a Christian to understand that. When something's defiled, it's useless. When something's defiled, it's not good for anything anymore. It's like a candle that's broken. You don't break it in half and then just use the rest of it. Maybe you did when you were poor, but you don't now. When something was defiled, it was ruined. And he says, I know that some of you aren't like that. Now, Apparently, this was a relatively small group of all the people that considered themselves Christians in that hodgepodge of religious diversity there in Sardis, and basically kind of a military town. He says, I know that some of you are hanging in there. 
relatively small group compared to the whole thing. Now, Paul wrote something like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 19. He said, There must be factions among you that, in order that those who are genuine may be recognized. That's an interesting verse because he's saying there, there has to be these differences among you because I'm making a distinction between those who are approved and those who are not. And that really kind of comes out of this. It kind of gets loud for a minute because he's telling you, he said, you're doing the right thing. You need to hang in there. There's not many of you, but I know who you are. And so the, the keep doing list is an interesting thing. It, 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 it gives way quickly to the stop doing list, which is the negative thing. And in verse 1 and 2, he says, I know you. Now, this... This knowing, I've told you, through all the messages, it appears the same way. And it's the occurrence of something in the past with an abiding result in the present. He says, I, I know you that well. My knowledge of you is that thorough. But he said, I, I know your works. You, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Now, it's interesting that these... These messages, over and over, they mention this idea of works or deeds. And in, uh, to Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 2, to Thyatira in chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus says, look, I'm concerned about what you're doing. Now, for some of you, that's part of your problem. You don't think Jesus cares about what you do. And he is showing in these letters over and over and over again, I know you because of what you do. But he said that all the time. He said, you can, you're going to know a tree by its fruit. He said, how can you being evil speak what's good? Because what comes out of your mouth is just proceeding from your heart. And see, you, you should be able to kind of tell yourself. Now, a lot of you kind of jerk yourself around in your head. You tell yourself that you're better than you are. And he said, just look at the fruit. Now, there's some of you, probably a few of you, that are really kind of hard on yourself and there's a lot of good stuff coming into your life and you still feel pretty bad about yourself. But that's not the majority of the problem today. The problem is that some of you keep telling yourselves you're really good. And it's like Jesus is saying, look, I'm looking at what you're doing and you're not really good. Now, some of you don't like it when I talk like this and you get mad and you go to other churches because there's a lot of people that will tell you you're good when you're not. I don't, I don't really care because it, I, I think it's a snare. When people tell you you're something when you're nothing, that doesn't help you. If any of you have ever played on a football team and, or a tennis team for that matter, there's a wide diversity, and you had somebody tell you that you were really good Oh, I've even thought of a better example. If, if you ever stood up here and sang, now I'll never do that. Every once in a while they'll catch, my, uh, they'll catch me singing on tape and it's just like, I will shoot you if you give that it recording to anybody because I can't sing. But you see, nobody ever told me I could. And see, here's the problem. If you can't sing and somebody keeps blowing smoke up your skirt by telling you you can sing, you're in for a terrible awakening. And see, what Scripture is, is a gracious unveiling. It's a disclosing that says, why don't you look at who you really are? And the stop doing list is really interesting because it just cuts through that. And I think he's really getting at two things to cut it short and simple. He's basically saying, stop pretending. Stop pretending. Don't put on this game 
anymore. And the second thing he's saying is stop being half-hearted. Stop living with half a heart. I, I find it somewhat surprising <clears throat> in our culture today that uh, when I go to Africa, those people in Africa, they don't have a tenth of what you have. But most of them are happier than you. And maybe our idea of happiness doesn't come from the things that we think it should. But he's basically saying that they were doing what many of us have come to do. We, we, we do things without passion. And we just do things because that's what we do. We go through the motions. And he's saying, I know who you are. The gig should be up. Stop pretending and stop living with half a heart. Now, <clears throat> David Kinnaman, in his book on Christian, cut to the chase of this. And this is the biggest problem. For those of you that are Christians, you need to own this. I need to own it. This is what he wrote. He, he wrote this in 2007, so the information is just a little, bit, a little bit old now. But he said, The term hypocritical has become fused to young people's experience with Christianity. 85% of young outsiders, those are people from the age of 19 to 29, 85% of them have had sufficient exposure to Christians and churches that they conclude present-day Christianity is hypocritical. And as I have pointed out, negative perception also bleed into the perspective of young churchgoers. Half agreed that Christianity is hypocritical. So if you're a Christian and you're sitting in this room, one out of two of you believe that the church is, is hypocritical. And if you're not a Christian, 85 out of 100 of you don't think we're sincere. That's bad. Now, I think it comes from passionate lives, myself. If I was to, to condense 20 years of counseling and 21,000 hours of, of involvement in people's lives, I can tell you that the statistic that says that 8 out of 10 of you will work for 30 to 40 years at jobs you hate and you're not very good at just for the sake of collecting a paycheck is true. And but you see, you don't get away with that. You die a little bit every day. Oh, you tell yourself, well, this is about caring for my family. This is about doing this, and that's true. There's some of you that don't have jobs. You need to get off your butt and go get a job because you've got to pay your bills. But there's a whole bunch of you that could do something different, but you don't have the courage. There's something that just brings you to a pause. Every time you, you get honest with yourself and you're saying, I really like to do this or I really like to do that, you don't figure out how to do that. And so a year goes by and five years goes by and ten years goes by and then pretty soon it's two or three decades. And you live the way you have to, not the way you want to. And there's no passion in it. And you know that. And the moment you started, it's like flipping the drain in the bathtub. Oh, it still has water and it will have water in it for several more minutes. But it's all going away, just like your life did. And so Jesus just cuts this open and he says, you need to stop doing this. Just, just pull the plug. Quit. Now, the corrective prescription is really interesting. It's four like bullets. He tells them and he says, you need to wake up. In verse 2 and 3, he, he says the same thing. Literally, make yourself alert. They were sleepwalking. That's what it means. They were just going through the motions. They were just zombies. They were alive. They, everybody thought they were alive, but they were really dead. And so he said, you need to wake up. Two, he said, you need to strengthen what isn't already ruined. 
In verse 2, he says, strengthen what remains and it's about to die. Now, Jesus talked like that oftentimes. He said, the bruised reed I won't break off or the smoldering flask I won't snuff out. What he's saying is sometimes stuff is really delicate. It just barely, just, uh, if you've ever tried to create a, uh, you know, a fire, in the, say, in the forest or when you're camping or something, that's the same thing. Um, you... I just want to make sure you're following me. Um, you know, it, 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 it seems it's just barely smoldering at first. Unless some of you pour gas all over it, and that, that doesn't the same thing. But he's saying there's some stuff that's about to die. And if it, but if it isn't ruined, I want to save it. Now, for some of you, that's going to be the first step in this. Because you don't know of anything that's worth saving. Not in Jesus' church anymore. But there's a lot going on. I think that there's a lot of wonderful things that are going on in our country. There's a lot of wonderful things that are happening in churches all over, even in Denver. And you need to identify what those are and make sure it's your hands that are keeping it from blowing out. Whatever it is that you can do to keep it going, then do that. Because Jesus said there's a lot of stuff around you that's about to die, but it's not dead. And those are the things that I'm telling you. I want you to wake up and I want you to strengthen that. I want you to keep it from dying. I want you to keep it from being ruined all the way. And see, some of you have become so jaded and pessimistic that you don't think it can change. And he's telling the city in Sardis, I know it's bad and there's only a few of you that are doing the right thing. But I want you to nerve your arm and I want you to keep some of it from dying. Now, he goes on and he tells them, number three, he tells them to wake up and to strengthen what isn't ruined. Number three, he says, I want you to remember what you've learned. There's some of you that the days behind you are much better than these days. Snap out of it. There's some of you that there was a season in your life where, man, you read your Bible. You couldn't wait to talk about things that God was showing you. You couldn't wait to discover things that Jesus was doing in your family and in your life around you. You were like a billboard for Jesus. But something happened. And he says, I want you to remember that. I want you to remember what you've heard, what you learned. In verse 3, he says, remember then what you've received and and heard there, there was an, an accountability to what they had known before in other words and so there's some of you that need to snap out of it the third thing is remember what you've learned and the fourth thing is do the right thing there's some of you that are still trying to jump tall buildings with a single bound it, it usually doesn't work and because you try it a couple of times when you get all jazzed up and you have a few friends that are they made a bet about how much of a fool you're going to make of yourself. And then when you fail, it's like, there's no God. You, you tried something that was too big. And it, I was like that for many years. I, I thought that the, the bigger the risk, the more the, my faith. And so I, I, was, I, I couldn't wait to find the biggest giant because I wanted to fight him. I wanted to find my Goliath. But it made me stupid in business. It made me too aggressive. It made me willing to take risks because I wanted everybody to know if something happened, it was because Jesus showed up, not because I was good. And some of you did what I did, and you got burned. God didn't show up, and you wondered if he's there at all. But you haven't done anything since then. You're not faithful with what you do have. You were faithful with all you didn't have. And he's just saying, do the right thing. Just be faithful with what you know, not what you don't know. 
And I, I, I think this resonates totally with, with, they called him old camel knees. James was the, the half-brother of Jesus, and he, he didn't even like Jesus until Jesus was resurrected. Um, but he was James the Just, they called him that as well, as he ruled, he ruled the church in Jerusalem. And after Jesus had ascended, he wrote the book of James, and he said in chapter 4, verse 17, he says, The man who knows what's right and does it not to him, it's sin. Now, some of you, if, if, if that's all you did is write a sticky and put it on your dash to say, just do what you know is right, if you would become a way better Christian, maybe twice the Christian you are. If you just lived according to what you know instead of keep reaching for all the fruit that's beyond your reach. Just do what you know is right. That's all he tells them. In the midst of all of this decay and this collapse and all that's going on there, he just says, look, keep it and repent. Remember what you heard. Just, just keep it and repent. And so this is just being faithful with what you have. And I, I think it's a major part of those people that they look to be alive, but they're really dead. The last, he says here, the, the warning. The warning is really simple. He says in verse 3, he says, If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know the hour that I come against you. I, I don't think that this is for correction. I've told you before that, that the sword is, is used, that we see in the book of Revelation, it's used for correction because it cuts all the way to the bone, and it's also used for death is for destruction and I think he's talking about that here I don't think he's talking about correction he's saying look straighten up or I'm done and there's a time that God is done now I don't know what the impartable sin is I don't think it's premarital sex I don't think it's homosexuality I don't think it's it's divorce but I don't know what it is but what I do know is that when God's done with people he's done and like the rich young ruler, he comes and he says, go and sell your things and give them to the poor and come follow me. And he was rich. He was young. And he was a ruler. And so he went away sad. And I don't know when God let you go. But if he has, don't act like you're done. And see if he isn't merciful. And so the warning is pretty straightforward. Straighten up or I'm done. And you're not going to like it. Now, the promise is the interesting part, and I, I took way too long to get to this point, so I'm going to go quickly. In verse 5 and 6, he says, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, some of you are going to roll your eyes, and I'm not going to look at anybody because I don't want to see that. Um, but I want to show you these old, these old charts that I always use because I think they're helpful and because it fills some of the space. Um, <laughs> that, that was a joke. Um, see, it, it takes, the first chart shows what courage, it, it takes courage to have hope, if you hope in anything. And see, hope starts if you have hope on the left and then time across the bottom. The difference between reality and what you hope for creates tension inside of us. And if you hope for something really stupid, like if you root for Pittsburgh and you want them to win the Super Bowl this year, that's going to be a lot of tension. But if you're, if you're hoping for the Broncos to win, that's not so much tension. Now, the Raiders are not going to win, so that's impossible. But you see, the difference between your reality line and your hope line creates this kind of, oh, this uncomfortableness. And anytime you dare to hope in something, you're taking a risk. 
Now, the two most common responses to someone actually hoping in something is quite different than what most of you think. The first response in resolving that tension is the next that one, is that you turn loose of your reality line and your reality line snaps up to your hope line and you become stupid. You immediately lose 50 IQ points, you don't pass go and you don't collect $200 because you turn loose of reality. Now we've all known these people. These are the people that when they tell you about their son, they're thinking, are we thinking of the same person? Because they can't cope. They can't deal with the fact that he's living a life that they just don't, they deny it. So they live in denial. The third way, the second way that you deal with that tension is in the third one, is that you turn loose of your hope and your hope line snaps down to your reality line and now you despair. So you see, you take a terrible risk when you dare to hope in something. Because you're immediately creating tension. You're immediately causing your heart to say, oh, wow, I don't know what's going to happen. Now listen again to what Jesus said and how he speaks to their hope. Now you've seen that again. I ran you through that. Notice how he keeps those lines from collapsing into denial or into despair. Listen to it. Now he gives them three promises regarding their hope. The first one is this. Legitimate virtue in this life. See, there's some of you that came to the gospel because in high school you became a slut. And you actually started believing. Mary Magdalene, yeah, she wasn't exactly virtue. But by the end of the gospels, she's one of the, a woman filled with so much virtue. It's astounding. Some of you sucked as business people. And you, you cheated everybody. You lied. Some of you couldn't tell the truth if you had a gun to your head. But you came to the gospel... And you thought it would change you, but it didn't change you as easily as you thought. Some of you are addicted to porn. Some of you are you, 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 you're, you're treacherous in your relationships. Some of you lie to your parents. And you came, but Jesus is saying, look, virtue's out there. You may not lay hold of it quite as quickly as you thought it was. It's not going to be because you're going to get out of bed and as soon as you roll your blankets off, this light beam is going to shine off your ceiling in the morning. It's not like that. That's not, it's not like that. But Jesus tells them this here. He says, look, you're going to have white garments. Now these white garments are really interesting. He says it in verse 4. He says it in verse 5. But it's really pointing to something that's going to take place way into the book in chapter 18. It's called the Wedding Feast of the Lamb. And those people are covered with these white garments. And it says in chapter 19 and verse 18, it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the linen, the fine linen, is the righteous deeds of the saints. You know what? That's good stuff that you did. Now, if you, if you go back into chapter 25 of Matthew, there's some dude at the wedding feast with no wedding garments. He said, get him out of here. And what that's telling you is that he had no good deeds. And so now, if you embrace the gospel, you're going to see virtue come into the world because you're a good person. And some of you haven't dared to hope in that very well. You can't bring yourself because of that tension. It's like, oh, I'll always be a slut. You don't have to live the rest of your life as a slut. You can't unslut. So let's just get that straight. You can't unslut. But what you can do is start today to live a life with true virtue in it. And that takes hope. That takes hope. Some of you don't want good relationships because you don't think you deserve it. That's terrible. You need to stop that. You don't need medication to overcome that. You need to believe that you can be a better person and you're worthy of having a good relationship. 
Some of you won't get good jobs because you don't think you, you, you deserve good jobs. Some of you don't. But fix it. Go back to school. Work harder. Get your butt out of bed on time and quit getting fired because you go to work late. So he's talking about real virtue. He said, hang in there and I'll get you there. Now the second thing that he tells him that maintains that tension, remember the chart, high hope, reality, not delusion, not despair. The second thing he tells him is confidence in facing the future. Now this book, I think, is, a, is a, like a, a buzzkill. For a lot of you, you've read this book one way for so long, you don't think there's any reason to try. So we quit building hospitals, we quit building schools, we quit trying to do anything significant because we think some bad guy is going to show up in history and just beat us all to a pulp. We're going to see that that's not what he's saying. He says, stick it out. And he's saying there's hope in the future. When he says in verse 5, I will never blot your name out from the book of life. That's pretty cool. Because he's saying... I'm going to be with you in the end. When it comes time, in chapter 20, it's kind of scary because they open one book. It's got a bunch of names in it. And then they, write a book, they open a bunch of other books that's got deeds in it. And you're going to be judged according to that. And he said, I won't take your name out of that book. That's the book of life. That's hope for the future. That's like knowing that your team wins. People, you know, sometimes people want to know, sometimes they don't. But he says you're going to win. And now in Exodus 32, Moses is struggling with this. Now, this is where the Jews have really blown it. And Aaron's made this calf, and Aaron lied about it. And he said, I just threw the gold in the fire, and it jumped out in this calf. He's like, you moron. Could just own it, just admit it. Uh, but, but Moses is, is arguing with God, because God says, just stand back and let me just torch them all. And he says, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. So when Jesus says here, I won't blot you out. That's pretty cool. Because now you can make it. Now the third thing he does to maintain the tension and the promises of their hope is that he promises that he will help you to live this life well. Now pay attention to this one. Verse 5, he says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now a lot of people, here's a real funny term. I'm going to use a long term and I'll explain it. They make this eschatological. Now eschaton is, in Greek means last things. So they're saying when Jesus says this, he's going to confess you right at the end. I don't think that's what this means at all. I think this is saying... The moment you start confessing me, I'm confessing you. Before God and before his angels. By the way, are the messengers are the one they're going back and forth and making all this stuff happen. That's why you pray in the Lord's Prayer, or the pattern for praying every day. Thy will be done on heaven or on earth as it's being done in heaven. He's saying, look, the, the moment you start confessing me, I'm confessing you. That's what he's saying. And so this is pretty good. Now in Matthew 10, in verse 32 and 33, he says, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And so he said, either you're with me or you're against me. And I know it by the way you're telling other people. And so when it's time to tell them and you don't tell them, I'm not telling my Father either. But when you do, 
this goes all the way back, doesn't it, to him knowing? See, he knows. He, he knows when you lose your nerve. And you should have said something, and you didn't. He knows that. He says, when you deny me, I'm not going to admit I know you either. That's pretty scary. Now, I think this maintains the hope on the other side of the equation when he says, you, you know, when you do, I am. When you, when you admit you know me, I'm admitting I know you. So either get in or get out. Christians don't like that today. And I, I know it's not, a, it's not all that comfortable, but this is how you get off the sidelines. See, it takes this. You never, you never hear coaches stand and just kind of whimper. Not the good ones, anyway. Man, they're just like screaming. The top of their head's coming off. Because it means something. I'm telling you what you, who you are. It means something. Your life means something. And if you're not going to fight for your life, who the heck you think is? If you're, if you're not going to stand up for who you are and what you can be, who in the world do you expect to believe in you when you don't believe in yourself? You see, it's time for the church to wake up. Remember what you know is right. And just do it. And see if he doesn't show up. All right, let's take your questions and I'll be done. I'm sorry, I went probably five minutes over today. We can strengthen what remains and hasn't died. Is there any hope for what has already died? Well, it depends if it's stinking. When something dies and starts stinking, now, now, hear me out on this. That, that was half joke. There's a lot of times that Christians, they think that their faith makes them like bulletproof. Now, some of these nurses that, 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 uh, that go here, Lucas is one of them, plays the keyboard, and Corey, a whole bunch of you, they know what it's like for Christians to go in and deny reality. And they go in and you have a child that, it only has that child, you know, they have to withdraw support, oftentimes three to five times a week on babies. And they know what it's like for Christians to have other Christians come in and tell them it's going to be okay. And they're thinking, who the heck are you to tell them that? But they do. There's some of you that are hanging on to marriages that have been dead for a long time and they're stinking and you won't admit that. Now, there's some of you that are quitting on some of them that aren't dead either. And so I'm not telling you one thing or the other. I'm just telling you that it takes wisdom to know which side. And I, I believe that there's a lot of churches in our country that the best thing that could happen is they could just lay down and die. And they could give their property to somebody that will do something with it. But instead, they have property all over the country, and they, they talk about things that don't come from the Bible. And those people, those churches, are filled with people that call themselves Christians, and they're dead. And I think the best thing that would happen is to euthanize those churches. Now, I'm, I think, I'm thankful that I'm not God, so I don't have to decide which ones. But yeah, there's some things that are alive that you can nurture, and it can get healthy again. But that doesn't mean it's everything. It does not mean it's everything. There's some of you that are running businesses that are so dead that you won't listen to everybody. Everybody's telling you, let's just let this go. But you believe that Jesus is going to show up on his white steed and you're going to be Nelson Rockefeller. Good luck with that. 
All right, next question. Oh, that's all. Oh, what a pleasant surprise. I'm sure, I'm sure there's many of you that are more relieved than I am. But let's go ahead and pray, and, uh, and we'll get ready for communion. Father, I, I, I really tend to think that the, the soil of many of our hearts is probably ready to receive a seed like this. And it, it's not an easy one. It, it's never too easy to admit that we're not the varsity. But there's many of us that we don't deserve to wear the varsity jersey because we just practice like the junior varsity. And it's time that we stop settling for that. I don't, I don't know how in the world we can go year after year expecting something special to happen when there's nothing special going on inside of us. I, I, I tend to think that it's, 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 it's pretty close to the stupid line when we think that we can get something out from never putting anything in. And I think that there's many of us in this room that know exactly what that means. We, we, we never read our Bibles. We never really pray. We act holy when we're around other Christians. When we come to church, we, we'll bring our Bible with us and we'll, we'll sing. Some of us will even dare to sing to where other people can hear us sing. But that doesn't mean that you really are proud of us. And just like this church of Sardis, many of us have to hear what Jesus said. I know exactly who you are. And I know there's some of you that haven't soiled their garments and you're going to wear white with me. And then there's a whole bunch of you that have a reputation of being alive, but in the end you're dead. And what I pray that you would do with that insult inside the heart of many of the people that might be even sitting here now or hearing this over the next couple of weeks, that you might give them the courage to do something about it. Instead of getting all offended and going away mad and finding out some church that will tell them some good things when there's no good things to be said. Instead of that, they would have the courage right now to change something. And maybe even now they could cry out and say, I, I think that's me. In fact, I, I know it's me. And maybe there would be a smile on your face for the first time. A smile on God's face looking into your heart for the first time in far too long. Because you, you did the right thing. You just admitted that your Christianity is kind of a sham. And you don't want it to be that way. I tend to think that I can promise you he'll be standing there with open arms to help you live a life it's better. The one that you always know it could be. But he's not going to drag you by the hair. And so it's time for you to make a decision. Are you just going to sit there and pretend like it's something that it's not? Just in your own heart, admit that it's not. And commit yourself to change. I pray that you would do that. God help us to do that very thing. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the L2 Sermon Series, Overcoming Bystander Christianity, taught by Dr. Russ McKendry. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, email feedback at l2today.com. And thanks for listening.